Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Uh, hello and welcome to uh, Market Narratives Podcast. Today I'm joined by Fred Samama, who's the Head of Responsible Investment at Amundi. Fred, welcome. Welcome and uh, well, thank you and I'm pleased to be with you. So I think one of the great places to start with you is um, some of the work that you've been well known for, which is the Green Swan. I'd like to really get a bit of a feel for for what you did in that paper and particularly how that paper, while you know being focused on climate risk, actually is really connected to the risks that we're seeing from the current COVID crisis. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, this Green Swan book that was released um, at the beginning of the year was co-written with uh, Luis Perada Silva from the BIS. Uh, Morgan Desprez and Romain Sarkman from Banque de France and Patrick Bolton from Columbia University. So first, it's a quite unique partnership between uh, two major central banks, uh, a very prestigious university and the private sector that I, I represent. And what is interesting is, as you can see, you have two central banks being uh, leading and actually they publish, um, they publish the, paper, the book. And why so? because actually central banks have decided to jump in on climate change. And it all started in Paris in December 2017 at the One Planet Summit, when eight central banks announced the setup of the network for greening the financial system. And very interestingly, two years later, this group has massively grown and now about 60 central banks and monetary supervisors have joined it. And even Mr. Powell, before the, the crisis, mentioned that he was seeing the joining up to it. So why are central banks uh, paying attention to, to climate change? Because they recognize that it threatens financial stability. Either we do nothing and, when, and then we put humanity at risk or we adjust how we manage our systems. But the magnitude of the adjustment is so massive that it could threaten financial stability. And that's why we, the authors, we developed the concept of green swan obviously inspired by the famous black swans of Nassib Nicholas Taleb. A green swan is a highly certain event with multiple non-linear and interacting causes that threatens life on Earth. And so climate change is an example of a green swan, and we'll see that the COVID-19 is one as well. Well, first, climate change is certain. Second, climate change carries a variety of non-linear and interacting risks physical, regulatory, and societal. And all these forces are interacting with each other. So it's very challenging to make such a complex model. And third, climate change impacts human lives and could even lead to the possible extinction of part of humanity in the long term. In summary, climate change could create some potentially extremely disruptive events that underlie systemic risks and put human lives at risk. And here you see immediately the parallel with the COVID-19 because the risks are very likely. Also, we were not so good at seeing it. Second, the forces at work are multiple, non-linear, and interacting with each other. 
firms are being impacted, are firing their employees that are not protected anymore, and it increases the likelihood of being sick for them. Uh, ultimately, it increases inequalities, and it even triggers some geopolitical movements like Russia and Saudi Arabia. How do you want to capture that into a model? And third, we can all see that the virus impacts the life of billions of people and kills poor people in rich countries and people in poor countries. So for all these reasons, climate change and COVID-19 are a very special kind of risks, very different from everything we've seen before. Risks that are likely, risks that have a lot of non-linearities and causes that are interacting with each other, and third, that are threatening lives on Earth. And so we need to take these three features very seriously into account in order to think how to adapt to these risks. And that's the second part of the book. It's about cooperation. It's about there's no one silver bullet. It's about financial innovation. It's about data getting captured to measure more properly the risks and so on. But really, here we have a new kind of risks happening here and now. It is you know is it is it right to say that the COVID nineteen is like a, a live test of of really some of the climate risk that many people have been warning about for a long time and the impact that climate risk you know would have on uh, on the financial economy. It was always seen as very far away and it's hard to sort of actually compartmentalize and and, and work out what the impact is now. You know, is this is this a a live example? Would you say of of a green squan or a, a climate uh, you know, a related event? Absolutely. Well, two things. The first one is that you're absolutely right that very often people say uh, climate change is far uh, ahead. Uh, it's, it's a very long run term and so on. And it was the famous tragedy of the horizon that Mark Carney coined uh, September 29 uh, at, the, uh, at the Lloyd's dinner. Uh, truth is, is that we already, on climate change, we already have more and more typhoons tornadoes, droughts, and so on. The number of extreme weather events have been, has been multiplied by four over the past 40 years. So the physical impacts related to climate change are already happening. In terms of regulatory risks, it's, uh, it's happening here and now as well. If you take, uh, for example, the um, auto car industry in Europe, uh, it's, it's entirely shifting due to some new norms imposed by the European Commission on the emissions uh, of, of the cars that the companies are producing. Uh, if you ask uh, Peugeot, Renault, Fiat, and Volkswagen how much you invest into uh, regular engines, thermal engines, the answer is zero. They're shifting their entire business towards electric cars. So what I'm trying to say here with these two examples is that the belief that climate change was far away from us is actually not so right. Now, the question is, did we perceive it collectively the right way? The answer is certainly no. Uh, and so you're absolutely right that this virus is a kind of wake-up call on the fact that the risks that we said were far away and unlikely actually here and now, and so very likely. The fact that with the virus, we saw that you had multiple uh, non-linearities and causes in interacting with each other. And so it's absolutely impossible to create a model. Who could have said that a virus 
that started uh, certainly in China would trigger uh, a geopolitical move from Saudi Arabia and Russia on the oil price. Impossible, impossible to put that into a model. Mm. And third, when human lives are again at risk, uh, the decisions taken are not at all the same ones than the ones that we can read in the, in the textbooks. Certainly we are okay to put uh, 4 billion people at home uh, in order to protect them. And we are putting uh, large economies at risk uh, for that. So all the ideas of how can we be um, efficient, and it was the main message for decades, is shifting towards how can we be resilient and how can we save lives of people. And so again, you're right that um, um, the virus is a kind of wake-up call of what could happen, but it's not could, it's actually already happening. And, 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 and now we have to take um, seriously, um, consider, con to, to consider seriously the consequences of this situation. I really wanted to pause you when you started to talk about the resilience of markets and, and uh, how we need to live our lives, because one of the really interesting questions when you, you talk about climate risk you know, in, in, a, in a general sense is, okay, if we need to address the climate, there's always this other group of people that says, well, okay, if you want to address the climate, it's going to have significant economic impacts. It's going to start causing issues on financial capital. You know, we're not going, we're going to be restricted in the returns that we have. So, you know, firstly, how, you know, how do you think about that? Now we're, you know, in this current circumstance, we have a situation where, um, you know, the, the economies have slowed down and actually the climate seems to be thriving in some parts of, of the world as pollution has gone down and, and waterways have cleared up. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that um, um, climate change will uh, impose some constraints on corporates is true, but that, I would say, it's life. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a very similar situation with banks. You know, uh, after the uh, 2007 and eight crisis, uh, the policymakers said, well, um, we are making um, two observations. The first one is that you cannot fail because we need banks. All our economies require very solid banks because they are allocating capital through the economies and so on. So they cannot fail. Second, uh, you are not ready. You are the banks. So we, the policymakers, we impose some uh, regulatory uh, constraints on you. You need to have contingent capital. You need to have buffers of capital and so on. The idea here is pretty simple. If you're important for society, you cannot fail. And for that, the policymakers must try to be sure that the corporates are taking the right um, um, decisions are organizing themselves the right way in order to really not fail. Mm -hmm. And so what is true for banks could be true for many other industries. Uh, and so it's not surprising that the policymakers are not saying, you know what, uh, we want that and that. Um, because on the one hand, we don't want you to, um, to fail. On the other hand, we need to have a resilient planet. And if you put that planet at risk, we, we must correct that. 
as simple as that, I think. It, it's a, but that's a fascinating um, place to sort of touch on because you, we, we, we've got a whole series of moral hazard that, that's coming through with all this support, you know, particularly when you look at the airline industry and some of the, the cruising mm-hmm. industry and the real cost of, mm-hmm. of carbon that, that they have. Mm-hmm. And yet the pressure mm-hmm. is really on, you know, to, to support these industries, the industries that, you know, have a pretty negative effect on the climate. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, we, we sort of think, well, no, we've got to worry about the people, you know, we've got to address the people. And so yet again, we're not pricing the externalities of some of these issues because we just focus on, mm-hmm. well, we've got to keep the system alive. Yeah, but it's, uh, and when we don't price the externalities correctly, we don't allocate the capital correctly as well. Mm. Uh, and then we are, have a kind of dis- dysfunctioning, um, some dysfunctioning economies. Uh, yeah, we don't price correctly uh, the cost of travel. Um, so it means that, uh, that means that we have tomatoes in Europe that are coming from Asia. Uh, tomatoes are traveling on average 6,000 kilometers. It's pretty big travelers. That's why they don't test so much because uh, they are selected uh, based on their skills to travel versus their, <laughs> their flavor. Uh, but um, yeah, so suddenly um, the economies are not organized uh, properly because we don't try to price on, on, the, on the right things. So absolutely, that's that's why I think the key, one of the key messages, is really to uh, to put a price on carbon and to uh, and to make all this data as transparent and available as possible. So it means that then all the players within one economy can um, take that into account in in their decisions. So transparency, data are key to shift. Uh, the economies towards uh, a sustainable economy. Let, let, let's also continue on the resilient path. And you know, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the funds, you know, the pension funds, you know, locally in Australia and, and obviously globally, for them, they need to keep generating returns. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real challenge for them where they've you know promised to members effectively, you know, or implicitly that they're going to generate a CPI plus two or three or four percent return. And there's this implicit assumption that there's this constant world growth that will then support these asset prices. Um, and so I sort of wonder, are we coming up against uh, loggerheads here where there's there's more and more climate-related issues that will start to affect the financial mm-hmm. economy? We've got COVID-19 that is clearly affecting the financial economy, mm-hmm. but then we've got a problem with, mm-hmm. of asset allocators globally that are desperate for returns and, and just need to generate returns somehow, some way. Um, uh, whether it's through huge amounts of you know leverage to to try and gear up these returns, but it, it feels like we're almost running up against uh, you know a climate risk from one side and a, and a, just an endless drive from asset owners to generate returns from the other, and they're going to clash at some point. Well, I, I can hear three points in your in your question. Uh, the first one is that with climate change, are we damaging the growth or not? Uh, second. Um, basically, uh, what is exactly my, my mission um, as a long-term investor? And I think we should just integrate climate change risks. And by doing that, you will generate some returns. And I will give a concrete example. And we could even go one step further and think uh, like uh, the former CIO of GPIF, um, 
Um, is it about what is the mission of, uh, of a large pension fund? Is that to generate returns or uh, just to make or, or, or and or to make the market more resilient? Um, so I would just elaborate on the three points. Uh, the first one is, um, um, is, is there really a trade-off between growth and climate change? Uh, not sure. I mean, uh, in Europe, we have reduced our, uh, our emissions quite uh, significantly, and we still had some growth. Uh, there's this, this Schumpeterian perspective that we have, uh, you know, all the time destruction, and we rebuild our economies. That's one of the beauties of capitalism: is able to always adapt and invent and develop some new solutions and so on. Uh, so, is really climate change to impact growth over the long run? Not necessarily, and the academic literature doesn't say the opposite. Uh, so the first point. The second point is, okay, uh, I'm a long-term investor. Um, should I do some returns on the one hand, and then suddenly there's a problem with climate change? No, it's, it's the same. I mean, it's on the same side. And climate change, clearly, uh, many risks were not and are still not correctly priced. So it means that if you're a long-term investor, and you don't take that into account, when the risks are getting rewarded, that means that the asset prices will go down in order to reward the risks. And if you, don't, if you did not exclude these non-rewarded risks, it will impact your returns. As simple as that. If you consider coal, coal companies uh, have been uh, carrying some non-rewarded risks for years. And, and, and the share price of companies have been really in trouble over the past uh, five years. So you had to reduce the weight of coal companies in your portfolios. More globally, we, we developed back in 2011 for um, uh, a Swedish pension fund, AP4, uh, and then uh, in 2014 for FAR, the low carbon technology. It's, at that time, it was extremely innovative. Um, um, it's, it's a way to screen all the constituents of an index and to um, pull out the most exposed companies to climate change based on scope one, scope two, and later scope three without changing the market exposure. So basically you have the MSCI, FTSE, S&P exposure, but you have reduced by 50% or more the exposure to these uh, polluting companies. And what is quite fascinating is that these indexes, while having a very low tracking error, so they really deliver the market returns, they have delivered the market returns plus some outperformance. And we talk about 30 basis points per year over the past uh, nine years. For passive products, it's absolutely huge. So really the trade-off saying, oh, am I generating some returns on the one hand and um, and, 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 and I will lose money on the other hand. No, you, you can really kill two birds with one stone. And basically, it's, it's, it's very much your core business to assess risks when you're an investor. And again, if a risk is not rewarded, that's your very core mission to sell it. And so now you have a more, um, um, I wouldn't say philosophical, but more abstract or more... Um, um, out-of-the-box thinking um, with Hiro Mizuno. Um, he said, 
I'm, I'm, he said in many interviews, and I had the opportunity to discuss with him about that. Um, he said, um, I'm a universal owner. You know, the Japanese pension fund is about $1.5 trillion. So basically, they own everything and so on. And he said, what is exactly what I'm doing? I'm fighting very hard to capture a fraction of BP, of outperformance, and, and so on. And every, it was before the crisis. And, before the, and he said before the crisis, and every 10 years, everything I've done, poof, collapses because there's a financial crisis. So these half bips or tens of bips that I've captured are just have disappeared forever because the market uh, is down. The markets are down um, 20 or 30 or whatever percent. So am I allocating my time correctly? And he came to the conclusion that maybe part of his mission was to make the market more resilient. Because ultimately, he is working on behalf of the Japanese pensioners. And if he can help the markets be more resilient, it will be to the benefit of its pensioners. And as a concrete example, he decided to, uh, to uh, abandon the fees related to um, stock lending. And it's not a small amount. It's, um, out of my memory, it's something like 120 million-ish uh, US dollars per year. Um, you can, it's, um, compared to the size of the fund, it's not so big, but in absolute terms, it's something, and you can hire a lot of people with that amount of money. You can improve your process and so on. And he said, no, okay, I'm okay not to get these fees that will directly impact positively my returns. But overall, I think it's not for the benefit of my ultimate uh, beneficiaries, being the Japanese uh, pensioners. So, um, so I, I'm okay not to, to, to get that money. So really, my three answers will be, first, there's no trade-off between green and, 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 and growth. Second, um, as soon as you, you accept that some risks like climate change or some others are not rewarded, that's part of your job. And third, you can even extend your job by saying, um, maybe I should consider how can I help market be more resilient. Did I answer your question? Oh, well, yeah, that's, 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 it answers the question and then brings more questions because you know one of the things that comes to me <laughs> is that as we think about you know, investing in, in green assets, you know, a lot of the assets that we buy, they're already existing, right? So it's because it's this financialized market that we're investing in, you know, so, the, so the question, and there's a lot of pressure on pension funds in Australia to actually have greenfield style, um, investments to really change the dial as opposed to pricing of risk. Um, and so, you know, in terms of pricing of risk of listed markets, so what, what's your thoughts there with respect to sort of the broader um, drive for, for green investments being really creating new uh, capital that, that goes into these green products as opposed to existing markets and, and shifting the sands, I guess, of the financial market? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, I would give the, the very broad picture and then I would answer uh, more globally. If we take one... One step back on this question of ESG or green, we can, I would say, identify three major phases. Uh, the first one was uh, the wake-up call. Uh, 
I think it's done. I mean, you can't open the newspapers without having something on climate change before the crisis or the virus now and so on. Central banks having jumped in and so on. Second, um, it was until recently, I wouldn't say a, a zoo, but something like that, between you know, impact investing, sustainable investment, responsible investment, ethical investment, and so on. You know, a lot of labels here and there, or tax or whatever. I think now it's being clarified and people are more thinking in terms of objectives versus um, terminologies where nobody uh, really agreed on. And third, that's, that's why, that will be my, my, my point is financial innovation. We must recognize that here uh, we need to invent, we meaning our industry we have a responsibility to invent the products uh, that are becoming plug and play for the investors and that can really uh, move the needle. I gave the concrete example of the low carbon indexes. It was a prototype in 2011 and now it's a 50 billion market as mentioned by the uh, Harvard Business Review in the last year in the May-June issue uh, in an article by Bob Eccles from Oxford. Um, so suddenly again, uh, a, a little initiative that started in Europe has spread around the world. And even in your region, the New Zealand Superannuation Fund has decided uh, in New Zealand to use this technology for all its equity uh, passive investment. So that's a concrete example. A second example is that we talk a lot about infrastructures financing. We know that there's a massive need in both in developed and particularly in developing markets. We need to have uh, sustainable uh, infrastructures in Brazil, in Mexico, in Thailand, and so on. And the infrastructure, infrastructures financing gaps are massive. It's very well known. And here, um, we have actually developed another financial innovation uh, in partnership with IFC. Uh, we have said, let's figure, let's find a solution, a concrete, a pragmatic, scalable solution. And basically what we did is that instead of brainstorming um, on a paper, uh, we analyzed the reasons. And we found two reasons why many investors were not financing the infrastructures in the emerging market. The first reason is the fact that for many investors, also it sounds surprising, they are not comfortable with the emerging market risks. Uh, their guidelines have been established years ago or whatever, their risk department and so on. Bottom line is that if you ask GPIF how much you invest into emerging market, until very, very recently it was zero out of $1.5 trillion. Second, truth as well, is that for most of the investors on the planet, with maybe the exception of the Canadians and the Australian pension funds, uh, they don't invest into infrastructures even locally uh, because it's a very special asset class. Everybody knows how to invest into equities on fixed income, but if you have a biomass project, if you have wind farms and so on, the risks associated with those projects are not so well known. So that makes uh, many, um, investors reluctant to invest into this very special asset class. And with IC, we came with a very concrete 
solution that addresses these two points. The first one is that we have created a fund that benefits from a risk sharing mechanism uh, in order to reduce the risks associated with emerging market debt. So problem, problem number one, check. Mm. And then on the second problem, that was a big one, how to finance green infrastructure projects without taking the risk associated with the project. And here, um, the IFC came with, had a moment of genius, they deserve a lot of credit for that. And they said, let's have the banks, the local banks, the banks in Mexico, in Thailand and so on, issue some green bonds. If it's a bank that issues a bond, we know the risks. Banks are very well regulated and so on. So investors will be comfortable with these risks. And by issuing a green bond, that means that the banks will channel the money towards some green infrastructure projects. So basically, we are decoupling the risks that we are taking from the channeling of the money towards some green infrastructure projects. And suddenly, with one project, with one fund, we have been able to deploy $2 billion. $2 billion with one fund. And it's so successful that this deal has received six awards. Uh, last week, uh, there was uh, a case study released by Imperial College on it. And um, with Patrick Bolton and Xavier Muscat, the former uh, head of the um, French Treasury and the former chief of staff of Nicolas Sarkozy, I will publish later um, this year on the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, a paper dedicated to that. And lastly, this new approach of partnering between a developing bank and the private sector in order to develop a prototype that becomes available for all the other investors with a really a plug and play solution. And by having this plug and play solution, actually the investors will do the jobs that the developing banks will have done otherwise. is so powerful for the benefit of all parties that the investors have the returns, uh, society has the right channel of money, that now AIB, the European Investment Bank, and AAIB, the Asian International Investment Bank, uh, are replicating this model and with us, Amundi. And for example, right now, we are developing a, a fund for AIB with $500 million of seed money coming from them in order to identify the, the, China, the Asian green leaders, developing a framework, um, uh, and, and that framework will become available for all the other investors. So here you have two examples of the low carbon indexes and these partnerships, where you see that it's often a, mix, a way to, innovation means to combine very different technologies with the low carbon technology. It was a way to mix two worlds that had never talked to each other before, the passive guys and the ESG people, two separate worlds. And by combining them, suddenly you had something that, was, that is working very well. With the IC, AIB, AIB deals, we are combining two separate worlds as well, uh, developing banks and the private sectors. Uh, but each time, when you're able to do that, then you really have an impact because you're creating the new products that are helping um, channel the money uh, uh, 
the right way for the benefit of all parties. Again, the low carbon indexes, the investors have benefited from additional returns while putting some pressure on the polluting companies. And for the IC, AIB, AIB deals, they are very good returns and they are financing some concrete projects in emerging markets. The, the interesting thing is that all all that backdrop is actually for the betterment of, of human civilization, right? And and I think that's the piece that is really important for people to realize that, yes, there's the finance that goes out there um, and how to try and address a better environment, but ultimately this is helping to address you know, human humankind. Um, and, you know, if we do have the right sort of humankind, you actually do have stronger financial systems as well. Um, I think that's one of the things that sometimes the risk ends up being too nebulous and doesn't get taken back to the individual people of the countries, which, you know, in, in the case of Australia with the pension funds, this is, this is the money of, of, the, of the population and it's helping to, to create a lifestyle for them um, that you know, improves, improves their way of living. I 1% agree with you. I 100% agree with you. Uh, at the end, we, the pensioners are, I would say, human beings. <laughs> so they, they must uh, breathe. They must, uh, everybody must survive um, and so on. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and to bring some returns um, to someone who is um, who's not alive anymore doesn't make sense. Uh, but here, um, I have another coming papers written with um, Mr. Simon Levin from Princeton and Patrick Bolton from Columbia, um, released in a book later this year um, that says, yes, if we think about why uh, ESG can generate some returns, because we have always this tension, um, the three reasons are maybe that corporates are more and more scrutinized, so you cannot hide anymore. Second, corporates are evolving into uh, shifting environments. So EAG can help identify these shifts of society, like you know, uh, the tax evasion. Uh, it was very popular a few years ago. Now, uh, policymakers and the public opinion is evolving on that. So here you have new risks uh, associated with this, um, with this, this, um, this approach. Um, so the, really the question is, are corporates, um, do they have the uh, adaptability skills and um, what kind of risk are they facing? Step two. And step three, and it leads to your point, the fact that corporates are like animals, again, uh, into um, uh, evolving into um, environments, but here, we, we, we strongly believe at Amundi that the pressure from, to, so from civil society is, is, is growing, that on two key challenges that are climate change, inequalities, and safety for people, so civil society will ask corporates not only to adapt, like in a very Darwinian approach, but maybe be part of the solutions that the, their environment must be solid and resilient. So um, to fix uh, one of the missions of the corporates will be certainly to be part of the solution to, to make their environment more robust. Otherwise, 
um, they will not survive themselves, mm-hmm. either because the environment will collapse or because the, the, the pressure from the civil society will keep on growing and then they could be banned. Well, that's a, sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, it's a great place to tie it back, you know, in terms of, I think, a lot of the pressure that's come from this current COVID-19 uh, situation where there is a lot of pressure um, from people, from civil society, pushing back on governments and governments pushing back on corporates to really make sure that we do mm-hmm. create a better lifestyle, um, better standard of living for everyone. So I think that process is starting and I, it takes some of these real dynamic changes and and, and really you know, a green squan in this case being COVID-19 to really change a lot of mentality around some of these investment topics. So uh, mm-hmm. please, uh, thank you very much ta- for, for your time this afternoon. I um, really appreciate uh, your, your participation. So thank you, Fred. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.